This podcast is brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. Our mission is to accelerate breakthroughs in life-saving cancer research and empower people everywhere to conquer cancer. You can make a gift at conquer.org forward slash podcast. Welcome to Your Stories, a podcast where we hear candid stories from people conquering cancer. I'm proud to be your host, Don Dizon. With me today is Dr. Chi Vet. She was born into a family of dentists, both her mother and her father, who were also both immigrants from Vietnam. And while some children grow up determined to blaze their own trails, young Chi decided to follow in her parents' footsteps, eventually graduating from dentistry school and even going on to marry a dentist herself. Somewhere along the way, however, she realized she had further to go. It started during her dentistry training when she began to encounter patients with oral cancer, one of the rarer forms of cancer and one that often has a devastating impact on those affected by it. And it was through these patients who discovered her professional calling. To improve the outcomes and quality of life for patients with oral cancer, it's a mission that involves significant dedication not only to her career, but to the patients she's determined to help and treat. That takes something more than expertise or funding. It takes partnership and collaboration with the very people who put their lives in her hands, her patients. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Vet. Thank you very much for having me. And it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today, Dr. Dizon. So before we go on, I would like to just understand your preference. Would you like to be called Dr. Vet or Chi? I personally do not have a preference. I would prefer to be called Chi. Okay, then you can call me Don. All right. So before we get started, let's hear, where are you tuning in today? I am currently in Southern California. I work at an institution named Loma Linda University, which is approximately one hour east of Los Angeles. Loma Linda is the tertiary care center for San Bernardino County. And as you know, San Bernardino County is actually the largest county by square miles in the United States. And in terms of health disparities, the county itself is the second poorest county in the country with a large population of patients who suffer from significant health disparities. Is there a large immigrant population in San Bernardino? Yes, there is definitely a very large immigrant population. You know, here in Providence, it's interesting for such a small city, we have a very large Southeast Asian population in addition to a very large Dominican Republic and Latino population as well. So let's get on and talk about your background. Now, both of your parents are dentists and your husband is a dentist. You studied dentistry. Get us started. Tell us about how you wound up transitioning from what looked like a set path as a dentist to a career as a surgical oncologist. Sometimes I ask myself the same question. You know, I was actually just lecturing to the local dental society in San Jose just last week. And, you know, it's a large society of over a thousand members, which include both my parents as well as probably nine or 10 of my cousins and all of my family friends who are all dentists. So I really grew up around dentists and I was just comfortable with dentistry. That's all I knew. My mom had her own office. My dad had his his office, but I, I would go to my mom's office every single day after school from the age of eight until 18. And then even with my brother babysitting him, it was in their lounge, in the dental office lounge. I think the reason why I chose to be pre-dental in college was that that was all I knew. And what really changed was starting 
a lab rotation during my time at UC Davis. It wasn't a lab that was focused on epigenetics. Their basic mechanism that changes the way that our genes are expressed in our cells. That led to my fascination with basic science research. So I had a very tough time because when I applied to dental school, I knew that I wanted to do more research. And that's what led me to enroll into the PhD program at University of California, San Francisco. And it was the research through the PhD program that exposed me to patients with oral cancer. There was this one particular gentleman. He was an immigrant from Vietnam. He had just come over six months prior to that. He had a wife, four kids. His youngest was not even a year old. And I remember being, as a dental student, and also as a PhD student, um, collecting his clinical samples to do research on, but also serving as his language interpreter. And he had late-stage oral cancer and unfortunately died of his cancer months later. But just seeing how much he suffered, the pain that he was going through, both emotional, but as you know, oral cancer is probably one of your most painful cancers. Just seeing that effect on his well-being was very tough. And that's what led me to just continue in oral cancer research. Yeah, as you were speaking about that patient, I just remember doing the head and neck clinic and fellowship and recognizing that it was it was the people with oral cancer. They seemed to suffer so greatly, but was interesting. They also, what I remember is that they suffered silently. It's like this wasn't a group of people who called the office, for example, and requiring payment. It was just this, this very silent suffering. I don't even think it had anything to do with conscious decisions about dignity. It was just, it was almost as if I don't know what to do with this. Yeah, it's very tough, particularly with oral cancer. Let's say you have tongue cancer or jaw cancer. The surgery itself is quite deforming. So anyone looking at you will know that you had cancer. So that in itself is sort of a constant reminder every time you look in the mirror of your diagnosis. And beyond that, so much of how we relate to others in social situations, speaking, even something as simple as eating at a table with other people. A lot of my patients will tell me that they're not able to do that because they're so conscious. The silent suffering is real because unfortunately there's not enough public awareness of this disease. And when people say that they're in pain, obviously we live in an opioid epidemic, but these patients with oral cancer in particular, they require much higher doses of starting opioids and they're much more likely to become tolerant to these pain meds, which are really our only line of defense against chronic pain in cancer patients. You work a lot just based on what we've covered already. And that research was really your motivation to help these patients and really spurred your interest in working in the field. And I see that you also do a lot of clinical trials. Is that right? I do clinical studies. So we're not performing an intervention. We collect clinical samples and information from patients. And from those samples, develop a biomarker or a molecular signature of whole cancer outcomes. Okay. Unfortunately, I'm not aware of the landscape of funding in head and neck cancer or oral cancer specifically, but I think you're correct regarding the lack of public awareness around oral cancers. And as we see, even in my field, which is gynecologic cancers, that 
translates into a dearth of research funding comparatively. How do you see the landscape of research funding support for your work and more broadly in oral cancers? In terms of cervical cancer, the incidence rate is only a third of that of oral cancer. But public interest in it is so much more. We encourage women to get their pap smear. There are multiple advertisements and commercials to remind women to do that. With oral cancer, we just don't have really any screening tool specifically for patients who don't have access to care. Patients who are well off or who have dental insurance, and it really boils down to access to dental care, which is unfortunately still not available for everybody in this country. There's really nothing that differentiates the rich from the poor quite like their dental health. So aside from your six-month visit to your dentist, where they should be doing an oral cancer screening, there's not much of a campaign for frequent oral cancer screenings. The last that we've heard about head and neck cancer or oral cancer, and perhaps the biggest campaign was with human papillomavirus. And as you know, HPV does cause a significant portion of oral pharyngeal cancers. Those are your throat cancers, back of the tongue, and tonsil, which is very different from oral cancer. So the tongue, the gums, survival and outcomes for oral cancer have not changed in the past several decades. Still, about half of patients will end up dying after five years. You know, I think that's part of the issue then. It's an oversimplification of the field. So much of how medical oncologists come across oral cancers is it's lumped into the field of head and neck. And if I remember things that I've seen in the, our ASCO meetings, it is around HPV and it's about therapeutic de-escalation of treatment because HPV positive oral pharyngeal cancers do so well. And I think sometimes that does translate into, oh, it's treatable. This is fine. It, it's not that bad of a disease. So I think just by you distinguishing that oral cancer is its own entity in the field of head and neck will be eye-opening to people actually listening to this. Absolutely. HPV-positive oral pharyngeal cancers have a great survival rate, and this is because we have invested research dollars into improving survival. And then now that survival is 90% in climbing, we're focused on de-escalating so that we're able to decrease side effects for our patients. Oral cavity cancer, not as many people focus on. Yeah, it's striking. And I'm only realizing now just talking to you, Chi. How long have you had your laboratory now? I moved to Loma Linda about four years ago in August of 2019. And this was right before COVID hit. So it was very interesting to try to build a cancer practice around COVID because we were seeing delays in care for these patients. Mm-hmm with a lot of offices shutting down. Yes. Yeah, I, I remember that. Just routine dental care, or dental general practices, they did shut down during COVID. And I can see how that can be as alarming to you as an oral cancer specialist as it was to me treating cancers of the pelvis. How was your research informed by the patients you're trying to help? My research is rooted in my clinical observations. And so it remains highly translational. 
for both my K-23 and for my R01 and also for that to mention the Conquer Cancer Grants that I was lucky enough to receive, the project is focused on my patients. The clinical study enrolls patients that I treat in my own practice into the study. I collect their samples as well as their outcome measures. And we were talking about it earlier, but their pain, their pain levels through a series of validated questionnaires. So my research has two different goals. The first is improving survival by identifying molecular signatures of poor survival. What are specific epigenetic markers that we find in patients with oral cancer that are likely to predict that they will die within the first two to five years. And the second focus of the research is pain. I'm fascinated by cancer pain, mostly because I witness it in my patient and see how much it affects the quality of life. But also when you think about it from a developmental or evolutionary standpoint, why is this cancer hurting the patient so much? You know, the mediators that it's producing will somehow causing the pain, but wouldn't that be a sort of a marker or a telltale sign for them to seek care? So wouldn't it be better if the cancer were just painless? I wonder that sometimes. So a portion of all cancers are exquisitely painful. And the most interesting thing is as soon as you cut that cancer out, the pain is completely gone. So we know that these mediators produced by the cancer cells and the cells within the tumor microenvironment are somehow mediating this exquisite function-related thing, but we also believe that these mediators have a critical role in invasion and metastasis, as well as other markers like perineal invasion. It makes a lot of sense for the nerves and the cancer cells to talk to each other, and in so doing, can cause more pain, cause more invasion. It sounds from your work that, in a way, your study volunteers who are participating in your trials, there's almost a vulnerability to them. Oh, yes, absolutely. Just because of the physical aspects of this cancer, but also, you know, like you've stated, the quality of life aspects. How do you see your role in addressing that vulnerability? And how do you take a population like that and keep them engaged in your research? I want to address the vulnerability first. Some of the aspects that we measure in the clinical study are related to social isolation and prior life stressors, early childhood stress. And I got this idea during COVID because I was seeing that some of my patients who did not have social support were doing well poorly. And some of our early data show that being isolated from your friends and family during your cancer diagnosis is not only worse for survival, but also worse for your symptoms. These patients are showing a lot more pain. So asking them to really just fill out a questionnaire to talk about early childhood adversities, it's a lot to have to take in. So I'd always have to preface those questionnaires with, you know, we're trying to understand how your prior life experiences might be related to your ability to fight cancer. And there's not enough research on this. I think that as a surgeon, it would be a lot easier for me to disassociate how I feel about the patient or what their background is and treat them as the cancer. But I cannot do that because at the end of the day, the decisions that I help them make related to their treatment also have to take into account 
their personal lives, their backgrounds, their families. And in a way, having them enroll into the clinical study allows me to learn more about them outside of just being a cancer patient. And that helps me make much more informed decisions and helps me advise them better, particularly in, unfortunately, the last stages of their life. Because I think that we all deserve to be able to live and to die with dignity in a way that we want to. Unfortunately, half of my patients don't make it. So that's a, a very real conversation that we have to have at a certain point. Thank you for that. And I completely agree. And it actually leads me to the next question I have for you, which is, from what I understand, that almost dual focus or even that determination to really focus on quality of life and in survival, not choosing one versus the other, has played a large role in your research, including in the jaw and a day surgery in which you have gained experience. So I guess the question to you is, what is it that drives you to think about your patients beyond a simple survival, but instead to really project forward and think about what their lives look like years after you first meet them? Before I answer that, just to clarify the jaw and a day procedure that you were alluding to. The standard of care for oral cavity cancer, let's focus on jaw cancer. So mandibular gingival cancer. Standard of care for that is you start with surgery, you cut out the portion of the jaw that is involved with cancer and do something called a neck dissection, which essentially removes all of the lymph nodes in the neck that are at high risk for having cancer cells. Oftentimes patients will be left with approximately 20, 30%, possibly 40% of their jaw left after we've taken out the cancer along with a healthy margin of bone. Then we reconstruct it using something called a free flap, which is typically taken from the patient's leg in a specific bone called the fibula bone, which you don't really need to function on a daily basis. And it works very well in building jaw bones. And so for the past couple of decades, that has become the standard of care where you put the fibula bone along with skin and muscle to rebuild a jaw. But the obvious problem that you can see there is you're just putting bone and soft tissue into a place that used to have teeth. And what cancer patients were told is, well, you should be happy that you survived your cancer. It's okay to function without teeth because it's very tough to reconstruct these patients. It's not the same to be able to make a denture for prosthodontists to make a denture on top of Leg bone and skin doesn't work the same way. So the jaw in a day, essentially what that is, is at the same time as the cancer surgery, taking out the cancer and rebuilding with the fibula bone, also putting in dental implants and a prosthesis, so a denture on top of the fibula. So it is just like building a jaw in one day. That's why that term was coined and it was developed by one of my attendings at New York University over 10 years ago. Initially used mainly for benign jaw tumors, but now with expanded applications in cancer patients. I think the reason why I'm fascinated by that and the reason why I offer that to my patients is because of my dental background. You know that oral maxillofacial surgeons don't tend to treat head and neck cancer. This is not a traditional training pathway. It's mostly within this country in the U.S., mostly done by the NT's I think with our dental background, we add just that bit more, being able to rehabilitate, fully rehabilitate the patient 
from a dental perspective? Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine achieving what a surgeon feels is a good outcome. It's just to have a jaw that looks like a jaw, but doesn't act like a jaw could act. To live without teeth sounds astounding to me. And certainly this push you have to help people live fully, I would assume means that reconstructing a jaw is important. So that's incredible. Yeah. And, you know, also beyond that, back to my comment about access to dental care, this allows for patients who might not otherwise have any access to dental care, despite their cancer diagnosis, um, the opportunity to get to the end. One of my patients told me something that I will never forget. He said, I just want to be able to bite into a cheeseburger again. How often is it that we eat in cheeseburgers and don't even think twice about that privilege? You know, I always often say you don't know how brave you need to be or can be until you're faced with a diagnosis like cancer and you're facing decisions that will alter the way you used to function. And the bravest people I know are the people who faced that and made decisions and then had to adjust and did adjust to what life is like. But it doesn't make the jobs that we do and certainly the jobs you do any less important by just saying, yeah, you'll be satisfied with what I give you. For a surgeon to say, how can I achieve an optimal outcome for you and make your life better beyond just today, I think is an incredible thing. And I'm hoping that people listening to this podcast will realize the thoughtfulness that comes into every decision you seem to be making with your patients. Thank you for saying that. You know, I completely agree with you. It's so tough to be able to truly understand what our patients are going through. And even the patients with the biggest support system with their spouses and families. At the end of the day, they have to walk that journey alone. And their spouses, for that matter, from the perspective of the partner, they suffer just as much, but the attention is not on them because they're not the cancer patient. Yeah. I always say that cancer is a social disease. The one I do talks about sexuality after cancer. Because I think you're right. I think the caregiver is seen as a support person, but this person has needs and is likely suffering in a very different way, but suffering nonetheless after this diagnosis. So for folks who are in their midst of building a research career and their independent labs, but still so invested in the clinical arena, what have you learned as to how that's worked for you? It seems to be okay. Well, I have to remind myself that I'm so lucky that I don't have oral cancer. And I'm sure you feel this way too. When you see patients that are around your age and they're having to face their diagnosis and undergo treatment, it reminds you of how fortunate you are that you have health and you have the resources to be able to help them and to do the work that makes you so happy. I think that, and I don't, quite understand how this works, but having a surgeon come in and a small, petite Asian woman <laughs> basically tell you that, okay, I'm going to cut out most of your jaw, cut into your neck, and then I'm going to go take your leg bone and rebuild your jaw. 
or take out half your tongue and then make you a new tongue. And somehow just signing up for that and trusting her. I don't know quite how that happens with my clinic visits, but somehow my patients trust me and I don't want to have to squander the trust that they place in me. So I feel personally obligated and not so much to do everything possible to make sure the cancer doesn't come back. The cancer does what it wants. We know how smart it is to be able to walk alongside them and make the right decisions for them personally. I think that's very well said. And certainly it seems like you are driven by this passion, but also you are laser focused in what I can do and what I can hope for and what I cannot guarantee. That's something that it took me a while to sort of figure out. And perhaps it is because you're not only focused in on how your patients do, but because you are so driven by understanding the biology of this whole thing, you seem exceptionally grounded. And what's even more interesting, and you mentioned this before, is that you also have a family of your own. So in addition to your research and in addition to your clinical studies, you're a mother and a wife and a daughter. How do you find the time for all of it? Because we all wear these hats and you know, the one day you're a surgeon and the one day you're a PI in a lab and then you have this other hat that you wear every day in your own personal life. How do you make space for all that? They all bleed into each other, don't they? It's never a balancing act. It's more of a juggling act. And sometimes you'll drop one ball and then you pick it right back up and you start where you left off. I was just in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, lecturing for an annual conference. And I led my daughter to believe that since she had just graduated kindergarten on Friday, that we were taking a trip to celebrate the end of kindergarten. <laughs> so that's how the professional and the personal lives mix. It's going to get harder. That trick will not work when she becomes a middle school or high school student. So take advantage of it. Now. It's so nice to have a daughter to sort of almost grow up with her through her eyes. When she was three years old, she asked me this question that made me finally realize what it was like to grow up as my daughter. She asked me, mom, are daddies able to be surgeons also? Or is it just mommies? And that was when I realized that she did not have the childhood that most girls did in a good way because she doesn't see gender boundaries that are traditionally placed on little girls. I think part of the reason why it turned out the way that I did was that both my parents, you know, dentistry is very gender neutral. 50% of women are dentists. But in my childhood, both of my parents never told me, well, you shouldn't do that because girls don't do that. What they did say was find a career that motivates you and you're passionate about, but at the same time, be able to devote to a family because it's so important to have a family and to be able to love. You know what I think is so, so striking about that answer is that one of the things we're focused in on as a specialty is this idea of wellness. And we talk about work-life balance. And what I find interesting and, and inspiring, quite frankly, Chi, about your answer is that your boundaries are fluid. You're actually living in this fluidity. And I think that is a really interesting thing for our listeners to realize is that work and life doesn't have to be 
separate doors in a home, that it's more like, you know, a riverbed. And as you, the currents change, you tailor what you're doing. But I think, I think that's just so beautifully stated. And I applaud you for that. You know, it's definitely something that is a work in progress. And within meditation and Buddhism, there is this concept of being present. So being in this kingdom of the present moment, if you are at work, enjoy work, be with your patients. If you're at home, be with your family. It's something that I'm working on. Yeah. And I think that's also really someone who's is so successful in the fact that I am figuring it out. Not that I figured it out, but I'm actually figuring this out. And you're smiling as you talk about it. So I think that's really wonderful. So we're almost at the end of our hour, but let me just throw this question at you that true or false and for better or worse, it is not uncommon for people to stereotype physicians and scientists and dare I say surgeons as being remote. We've talked about this a little bit already, but when you look at the definition of clinical, it even says efficient, unemotional, coldly detached. What advice would you give to physicians who want to find space in their head and their practice to build stronger partnerships and deeper empathy-driven relationships? Oh, well, that's a tough one. I don't think they have to be exclusive of each other. I am as unemotional as you can get in the operating room because you need to be able to make decisions quickly during surgery, especially when somebody's life is on the line. But that does not mean that you cannot relate to your patients on a deeper level outside of surgery. So you can be both. Maybe it's because I'm a Gemini. I don't know. I have definitely been described as efficient and aloof. And I've also been described as compassionate and emotional. Isn't that interesting? There's almost this dualness to how you practice. Do you think that those personas mirror or do they reflect the different roles you're playing in medicine and, and surgery? So the aloofness is more tied to a persona in the operating room versus the emotionality is being tied to your clinical practice in the office or even in the lab? Perhaps. I think the one commonality is the calmness that you have to display in all situations. In the operating room, being aloof and being calm are very important. But something that draws my patients to me, or so I've been told, is that I'm able to sympathize. I have empathy for them, but I'm also very calm in my conversations with them. And for them, that creates this sense of trust and almost peacefulness. I think it just comes down to the human connection, our ability to relate to others. And it's just so much more rewarding and interesting when you know more about the patient than just their diagnosis. I think that's the reason that I try to relate to my patients. I think that's brilliant. I do. All right. Tell me, Chi, what does cancer research saves lives mean to you? I think patients are sometimes told to expect a miracle in their cancer treatment or that some trial will magically take their cancer away. When the reality is that New cures and treatments are the result of the hard work of men and women in the cancer research field. Through the partnership with patients who volunteer for these trials and 
governmental funding, also with foundations like Concord Cancer, who are willing to fund a very diverse portfolio of cancer research. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And then the final question for you, how are you conquering cancer? I think that I'm dealing with one of the toughest cancers out there and that all that I can do at the end of the day is to be able to use the knowledge that I have and the skill set that I have to help patients make informed decisions about their treatment. Thank you so much, Chi, for chatting. And I am inspired by what you do as a surgeon and as a researcher, but I'm most inspired about how you are as a clinician. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. For doctor-approved patient information, please visit cancer.net, which is supported in part by Conquer Cancer donors. Conquer Cancer is creating a world where cancer is prevented or cured and every survivor is healthy. You can make a gift at conquer.org forward slash podcast. The participants of this podcast report no conflicts of interest relevant to the podcast. Full disclosures can be found on the episode page on conquer.org. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Guest statements on the podcast do not express the opinions of ASCO. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.